Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Tom DeQuino, who from 1981 to 2009 served as the CEO of what is today the Business Council of Canada, the country's most influential business organization. That bio doesn't quite do him justice, however. From his unique vantage point, Tom shaped and observed the most important economic, political, and social changes over the past 40 years. He's documented these experiences and insights in a new must-read memoir, Private Power, Public Purpose. I'm grateful to speak with him about the book, including its window into politics and public policy over such a crucial period in Canadian history. I should say as an aside that my graduate research, which seems like a lifetime ago, was dedicated in part to Tom's efforts to elevate the voice of Canada's business community on public policy matters, including on the subject of free trade, as we'll discuss shortly. Tom, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. John, it's my pleasure, particularly given that I'm talking to an individual who wrote his master's thesis at Carleton University on the very organization that I was privileged to lead for almost 30 years. Let's start with your personal background. Uh, You were the son of immigrants who settled in the Kootenays. These are not the typical beginnings of a quintessential insider. How did your experience as a second-generation immigrant and a British Columbian shape the way you came to think about politics and the country? Sean, I would say, first of all, um, many of us in Canada, the vast majority of us who uh, have parents who immigrated or grandparents who immigrated, know that the values that one grows up with obviously have a great deal to do with what you're going to do with the rest of your life. And in my case, uh, my parents drilled into me the importance of hard work, clearly. My father was a very stern disciplinarian. My mother, on the other hand, was hugely loving and accommodating in every sense of the word. So um, I I really grew up in a, I would say, a, a privileged childhood. But um, one of the ways that it affected me was that my father, in many respects, was a political refugee. He left Italy just at the time that communists and fascists were battling out of the streets of Italy. And although he had pledged his allegiance to the king, Mussolini was just around the corner. And he made a big decision to leave his family and his career behind and come to Canada. And, And then proposed to my mother. She came. And uh, But the impact that it had on me was to say, look, you're privileged to live in Canada, you're privileged to grow up here, appreciate what we have in the way of a free and democratic society. That was always drilled into me. 
And, um, and my mother taught me the importance of being kind to other people and realizing that, you know, the rich, in fact, Sean, I can tell you this, the night before she died, she said to me, uh, Tom, think about the poor, the rich can look after themselves. And that was very, very much my mother's message to me. And that really shaped my approach to public policy and what I ended up doing in the business council. How did your tenure in federal, federal politics, including on Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau's staff, shape your understanding of the need for a new approach to business policy advocacy? What was the problem with the status quo and why was a new model needed? Well, Sean, being able to spend those three and a half years, including the time on Prime Minister Trudeau's leadership campaign staff, was of seminal importance. That gave me my first window to politics in Canada, uh, serving with James Richardson for a year as a member of the cabinet. That, I mean, that was invaluable experience because I was a very keen observer about the machinery of government, the policy issues, the approach to how, whether you're a cabinet minister or a prime minister, you deal with policy challenges, and realizing in the case of the prime minister that the buck stops at the top. I mean, those are all important lessons for me. But what I did see at that time was a situation where business, in the sense of we know it today, did not have a role in, uh, in the shaping of public policy. When I was on Mr. Trudeau's staff, was occasionally summoned, literally summoned, to come to a meeting. There was no advance notice as to what the agenda was going to be. And uh, the meetings usually lasted for a very short period of time, and then they were over. And they did not happen very often. That said to me that things needed to change. But it was also a time, Sean, when there was tremendous change, uh, it's societal change. We saw it very much at play in the United States, the during and the aftermath of the Vietnam War. And I remember very clearly when I was a young uh, lawyer advising the then nascent BCNI, you know, being summoned to a meeting because I dared to write a memo that said, let's wake up the sleeping Leviathan. And, and the powerful CEOs of the time, Ian Sinclair of Canadian Pacific, or Earl McLaughlin of the Royal Bank, Paul Demaray Sr., whose family is still very much involved. I was summoned to a meeting of the Mount Royal Club in, in Montreal, and they said, what is the meaning of this? You know, if I, Ian, want to pick up the telephone and call Pierre, I can do that anytime I want. If Earl wants to talk to the governor of the bank, what's all this business about, you know, the coming changes and the growing demands for accountability? And I thought I was going to be fired on the spot as an advisor, but the result was that they hired me. I tried to take that view from day one that we've got to be proactive. We cannot be measured by the fact that we are 150 CEOs and therefore we are powerful by definition, but it was the power of our ideas with which we had to lead. That was the new approach. And that at the time, I would argue, Sean, was really quite revolutionary. Can I just add one other thing? It was also, a, it was also at a time when uh, Milton Friedman and the idea of shareholder primacy was dominant. In those days, if you were a CEO meddling in public policy, you were usually seen as a person who wasn't, you know, you're not taking your job seriously. Mm. And uh, the idea that we should move from this idea of shareholder primacy to arguing, as I did in my maiden speech to the council, that the real purpose of capital is social betterment, 
that was really quite revolutionary at the time. And I thought it was going to be a very, very hard sell. But in a remarkably short period of time, people came along with that idea and embraced it. That's a great segue to my next question. You assume the job as the founding president and later CEO of the Business Council on National Issues at essentially the same time as a new policymaking paradigm, call it Thatcherism or Reaganism or whatever, was taking shape around the Western world. The book outlines various ways in which you professionalized and elevated the internal and external operations of the council. But do you want to reflect on the changing intellectual and political environment? To what extent was the era a unique period in which the interests of businesses seemed to closely align with our broader understanding of the success of individuals and societies as a whole? Well, I would say that uh, despite what I said in my maiden speech about the need for business to be more proactive, to engage, to engage in a much broader uh, reach towards public policy objectives that were not just simply the predictable ones. It was a, a time when Thatcherism and Reaganism were powerful in the world. And, uh, you know, there were, um, in the case of Mrs. Thatcher, she had obviously confronted the old order in the United Kingdom. In the United States, we saw the magic that Ronald Reagan was able to wield in his presidential exercise of his presidential powers. In Canada, we had a Trudeau government that was uh, interventionist. It had said that it was not interested in wage and price controls, and then it came in and did it. That degree of interventionism, along with what some people may remember, was called the National Energy Program, which was deemed to be a massive intervention in the in the energy industry, and not to mention then the, the growth of interest in regulating foreign investment. All of these things were seen by the business leadership at the time as something that had to be counted. And uh, the traditional way to counter it would have been to just simply criticize it and be done with it. Whereas we took the position that if we are going to criticize it, we have to come up with better solutions. And that's what we concentrated on. You write in the book that even taking the job in 1981, you were motivated by the goal of trade liberalization, particularly with the United States. What was it in your experience or education that tilted you in that direction so early on? Well, the time that I spent in uh, London, in England, working with a private firm and getting myself into the very earliest manifestations of corporate social responsibility studies showed me that in this environment, which was driven by certain Thatcher-Reagan-style principles, you know, business was, the role of business was business and let's get out there and do it, let's maximize profit, that increasingly as as the general public began to react to this, that business in turn needed to realize that, hey, you know what, we do have a broader set of responsibilities here. I brought that to the council at the time, but it but it was a it, it was a it was that experience that I had in Europe initially, and then coming back to Canada, but building on my experience in the Pierre Trudeau office that led me to believe that there was a unique opportunity here for business to show its mettle and to argue, Sean, that we're not just doing this in order to win plaudits in the public or to check off some boxes that you're doing the right things among your stakeholders. But my argument was that if we are able to do this, it'll be good for business in its, in its own uh, regard. 
And, uh, and that's what we ended up doing, because one could argue at the end of the day, when people said, why are you doing studies on parliamentary reform? Why are you worried about the patriation of the Canadian Constitution? Why are you pushing for free trade? Ultimately, the argument was that if we have a more politically stable country with a much more adventuresome international policy, we can build we can have greater growth and we can build more jobs for Canadians. So the, the free trade initiative, which I would argue was the most important policy construct of the post-war world. The reason I say that is because, first of all, selling it was tough. A lot of my own CEO colleagues said, we can't do it. We can't compete with the Americans. When I finally got them on side, the argument we made was that we are facing a protectionist U.S. The only way that we can secure our future is to get inside that protection, become part of a bigger whole, because if we don't do that, um, investment's going to leave Canada. We're just simply not going to grow as we should. And we that culminated in, as you know, the, the most intense of certainly that period, probably of the post-war world, where the election in 1988 was fought on one issue, one issue alone, is free trade good or bad for the country? And the, um, those who argued that we were going to lose our health care, that we were going to be taken over in every respect, that corporations would leave Canada en masse, that did not turn out to be, as you know. So that to me was, if I can use Turner-esque language, that to me was the fight of my life. And, and of course, Mulroney's leadership with the FTA was very important to the future of the country. Uh, we'll come to the 88 election in a minute. But before we get there, I, I want to bring up a historical nugget in the book. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about it. Through some connections in the U.S., you arranged for a series of high-profile meetings in February 1985 to discuss continental free trade, including with the current president, Joe Biden. Right. What was he like? What was his knowledge of Canada? Were we able to get a read of him and his politics at that time? Well, uh, it's interesting because that 1985 meeting, the explanation for it as to why it actually took place is at the time, I was doing two jobs. I was also acting as counsel to Time Incorporated. And Time Incorporated in those days was a very powerful um, media universe, as you know, uh, both in Canada through Time Inc. and subsequently through through its, uh, its, its television networks. So the good folks at time arranged for a delegation of our CEOs from Canada to go down to Washington. And at that moment, I, it was the first time I had met Secretary George uh, Schultz, who was then Secretary of State, who became a very close friend and mentor to me. But at the same time, we met all sorts of other individuals. I mentioned Bob Dole. I mentioned uh, Kent. Uh, I mentioned Joe Biden. And I remember the impression that Biden made upon me at the time is that he was enormously knowledgeable about foreign affairs. I mean, you know, this was his specialty. And when we did meet with him, the, the majority of our discussion was around foreign policy issues of importance in the United States. I have to tell you that at that particular time, while he did say some polite things about Canada, the foreign policy priorities in his mind at, at that time were, of course, the great competitive challenge coming from Japan, uh, how we were to come to terms with, you know, uh, Europeans who were also very protectionist and who weren't seeing the eyes through, that weren't seeing 
trade as they should. And Canada was really seen as very much an afterthought. So when we started kicking around the idea of free trade, there was always polite acceptance, of course. Or some people would say, do we really need to do this? I mean, aren't we friends? Aren't we trading? What's the problem? But the idea of a formal trade agreement was very much foreign to them. As we then got into the lead up to the free trade election, we ran into all sorts of problems uh, with people like Bob Dole at a, at a, a memorable meeting in Washington saying, Mr. DeQuino, I don't accept your arguments that we should have a dispute settlement mechanism. The United States is not prepared to give up its sovereignty. I mean, dispute settlement means that somebody else has to resolve disputes that we may have between us. We, we're, we're not prepared to go that far. So um, it, it was an interesting time, but it was really a fascinating time, too, because it wasn't just the Secretary Schultz's, but uh, we were heavily involved in looking at defense policy. That was a time when I got to know Secretary Weinberger, uh, meetings at the Pentagon, uh, and uh, as and I do a chapter on Canadian defense policy in which we were involved. But that was a critical part, in my view, of how we saw the continent, right? The United States would only be interested in Canada if we could bring something to the table that was important economically and if ensure that we are pulling our weight on, on defense policy and the defense of the continent. You mentioned in a previous answer some of the challenges in brokering a consensus within the BCNI membership to, to champion the case for free trade. Do you want to talk a bit about the decision to participate so actively in the 1988 election campaign? What was the reaction or response from your members on that decision? And then separate but related, do you want to reflect on some of the opposition, including from your friend, John Turner in that campaign. What was that experience like for you? Well, uh, Sean, the, as I lay out in the book, the, uh, and, and incidentally, it's one of the lessons I give on why, how public policy and the pursuit of public policy goals require certain strategies. The very first meeting, which I record in the book, where we raised the issue of a free trade agreement was a, was a private meeting with Vice President Bush. <laughs> Uh, George W. Bush, who also became a friend, and I had the great privilege of fishing with him in the great rivers of Labrador. But at that meeting, uh, attended also by Martin Feldstein, who is still alive, we put the idea to the vice president, why not a free trade agreement? And his response was, well, what's in it politely, as he would do, he was a very polite gentleman, what's in it for the United States? And I responded, a, an economy the size of California. And his response was, well, maybe we should really look at this. And that was the first time that a formal, as I say, formal proposal, vocal as it was, with a bit of writing attached, was put to a senior member of the administration. So then the process began, but it started with getting all of our people on side. And it took from about 1981 to the end of 82 to get all of our members on side with the idea that we should pursue this. A lot of them thought it might be a, a pursuit in vain. Would we really be able to succeed? But people were on side because they realized and finally bought, and, and this required a lot of homework, a lot of seminars, a lot of briefings. They bought into the idea that either we engage with the Americans and try to achieve a level playing field, or ultimately we're going to be big losers. But, but then the process of reaching out to Brian Mulroney, who initially strongly opposed free trade to the leaders of the other uh, federal parties who were opposed to free trade. 
The only person of the time was a man called John Crosby, which some of you may remember, who was Minister of Finance in the Clark government, who supported the idea of free trade. But we, we were up against a wall. Senior officials, almost to the, to the person, one or two exceptions, said, you know what, the time is not right. This is not going to work. So it required long and arduous effort, a lot of advocacy that worked up through 83, the McDonald Royal Commission, 84, the arrival of Mulroney, then the Shamrock Summit, and then on right through to 88. So we were very high profile. Uh, it was a difficult campaign. As I mentioned in the book, My, I was burned in effigy and in Ottawa. Truckload of cow dung was dropped on my driveway. Masked banditos, uh, uh, you know, invaded my offices. Fortunately, I was in Japan at the time, but my terrorized staff had to put up with these people until they were released. It, it was a bitter, bitter campaign. But but our membership were solidly on board, and a, a lot of them would say to this very day, it was probably one of the most exciting times in their lives because they were playing such an important public role. Let me shift gears a bit. You first visited China in 1985 and outlined in the book your efforts to bolster bilateral economic relations. In hindsight, how has your thinking evolved? How should Canadian policymakers conceptualize our relationship with China? Well, you know, Sean, I freely admit to being one of the leading private sector cheerleaders for China in that period. Keep in mind that I was on Mr. Trudeau's staff when uh, uh, diplomatic relations were extended to China. And we were one of the first countries in the Western world to do so, at the time opposed by the Nixon administration and then quickly followed up by Kissinger-Nixon. In, in, uh, in that early period of the 80s, I was very taken with what Deng Xiaoping was able, you know, who said it doesn't matter what color the cat is, right? So long as it catches mice. I thought that this was a genuinely the great opening, not only of China, but the great opening of the century. That You know, what Napoleon had referred to as, you know, letting the, the sleeping uh, lion sleep was finally coming to wake, which in my view, I was convinced at the time, because remember, I was already an international neoliberal uh, believer in the international uh, liberal order, that China was going to dramatically change the face of that order. So I, I strongly supported it. I took the first CEO missions, Canadian CEO missions to China and to India. And, and it was at a time when Beijing was only mainly bicycles and a few cars, <laughs> you know, across the river in Shanghai, there was nothing like that collection of towers that we see today. And uh, my conviction was always based on this belief that a more globalized world, a world in which China can be brought in, be a signatory to the WTO, play by Western rules. This, this was not only going to lift hundreds of millions of Chinese out of poverty, but it was going to be good for the world order. And I continued in that belief and continued to be a very strong supporter of Chinese engagement through the uh, 90s and into the, the beginning of the new century. Fortunately for me, I was also sitting on the board of Manulife Financial. Manulife Financial in Canada, one of our largest insurance companies, was also the largest Canadian financial investor in China. That gave me an additional set of lenses on what was happening. And uh, it, it was only, and it was through Tiananmen, of course, and Jiang Jamin, who I 
I got to know at a personal level uh, the president of China. It wasn't until uh, you know we began to see the arrival of so-called wolf warrior diplomacy, certainly the arrival of Xi Jinping to the leadership, that I began to see China through a very different set of eyes. I was very concerned of what was going to be happening to Hong Kong. I was very close to Hong Kong. I was there for the handover. And as I began to see increasing signs that maybe China was going to march to its own drum, it was not going to play by Western rules. I could see also in my private sector encounters that some of the big state-owned companies in China had global visions that were what I call geopolitical and not just geoeconomic visions. That's when I began to change my mind, became increasingly concerned that not only Canada wasn't getting it, but that the West was not getting it. And, and, and as we walked through 2009 into the 210, 211, 212, my views on China really began to change, even though I attended the Beijing Olympics and also the Shanghai the Great Shanghai World's Fair, which I refer to as the two biggest coming out parties. But I began to see that China was going to march to its own drum. And I thought to myself, we've got to be much more careful of how we deal with China. That's when I started calling Canada to develop a, pro, a pro-Canada policy. In other words, a, a strategic policy that would make sense. And I know at the time that Mr. Harper was prime minister, I even publicly rebuked him or criticized him for not wishing to engage with China. And in many respects, Mr. Harper, and his his suspicion of of communism at the time, in some respects was vindicated. But I certainly changed my mind. And of course, I have a very different view of China now. Not about the Chinese people, but certainly about the leadership. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. One thing that's striking about the book is how broad and deep your personal relationships are in Ottawa. Let me ask you to respond to possible critics. Is there something wrong or untoward about a leading business voice with such relationships across politics, culture, public policy, and so on? Or would you instead argue that it's healthy to have such cross-pollination of ideas and perspectives? Oh, Sean, very much so. You know, I, I took the attitude way back when I was in the prime minister's office, observing politics from the so-called apex of power, where you could see what was going on around Trudeau. And the one observation I made way back then is that one should always treat the opposition uh, with respect. I was never a believer in what I call, you know, wedge politics or the politics of, uh, you know, the scorched earth. I never believe in that and feel very strongly about that to this very day where, where I think the country is faced with some serious problems. But, but I would say this. I always used to say, always be kind and respectful to people on their way up because you're likely going to meet them on the way down. That's something my father taught me, incidentally. And so as I reached out, always from an argument of nonpartisanship, over and over and over and over again, I would have to say to my members, we are nonpartisan. 
We belong to no party. Yes, there will be some po policies that will be more uh, to your liking than others. Probably not many member of my members voted NDP. But the fact of the matter is that my argument for strict nonpartisanship was based on a belief, Sean, that if we put forward arguments, even if they were highly critical, and in many instances they were, and got us into trouble with the governments in power, they would see us as honest critics. So that was important. But at the same time, I reached out to opposition, members of the government. And uh, yes, I worked at that very, very hard. You know, if, uh, if somebody were booted out of office, I didn't suddenly take their card out of my Rolodex and say, I'm not going to call that person again. I never did that. Never have, never do. Because in that respect, loyalty to me, regardless of politics, is a pretty important thing. So I, yes, I was criticized quite heavily by Mel Hurtigs of the world and the Maud Barlows and the left generally, that I was too powerful, too influential. In many instances, it was portrayed as power that comes from money and what money says. My constant response to that was, you know what, we can, yes, we may have, uh, you know, uh, we, we may have $800 billion a year in revenues from our companies and trillions of dollars in assets. The fact of the matter is that we would be nothing if we did not have valid, good, well-researched ideas. And, and I think, by and large, not free of criticism, but we were respected because of our independence. But as I said, it certainly got us into trouble. Of, of the living prime ministers today, Mulroney, Cretan, and Martin, and uh, uh, Harper, and maybe you could add to that, Justin Trudeau, I had great, great fights with all of them, less so with Justin Trudeau, because I've not really been that much engaged with him. Great fights, but I can honestly claim to this day that I believe they're all friends of mine. Still talk to them, we are in touch. So obviously I did something right, Sean, but you know, you have to do what you have to do. And if I was close to a lot of individuals, I make no apology for it. But I certainly didn't go around Ottawa beating my chest saying, I'm a friend of the prime minister, therefore you should do what I'm asking you to do. Let me ask a follow-up question. Do you think that such connections still exist today? And if not, why not? Why isn't there a, a, a Tom DeQuino? Well, you know, my successor by two at the Business Council, Goldie Hyder, who I think is a phenomenal leader. I have the highest respect for Goldie. He's a powerful communicator. He really gets the importance of the policy agenda uh, and has engaged our CEOs, and I continue to be very active in the organization in an impressive way. But he has said privately, but he's also said publicly that this government, the current government, is not a great friend of big business. I mean, we know that. I think I'm, I think I'm telling you the, the, the obvious here. And when you're not a, a great friend, it means that sometimes communications are difficult. Yes, you may be heard, and that has not stopped Goldie and the members of the council submitting excellent briefs on, you know, where the, the next budget should, should be going, the positions on innovation, their positions on immigration, and so on and so forth. But the fact of the matter is that while I would not argue that we were close to the Mulroney government in the sense that we were great pals, we were close enough that we could always talk to one another. The same thing applied to John Cretan, the same thing applied to Paul Martin. The relationship with Stephen Harper was more formal and what I would call a more correct relationship and what I would call a more correct relationship 
which I never, never, you know, I never, never complained about because it was in many respects as it should be. We have a respectful, mutual relationship. We respect one another. We won't always agree. Uh, and that's all right, so long as we're regarded for what we are, and that is truly independent. The worst thing in the world, and these were difficult times, is when during the free trade agreement, our left-wing critics would say, ah, no wonder you're supporting Brian Mulroney, you're great pals. You know, Jean Chrétien attacked uh, me and the council over and over again for being a pal for Brian Mulroney. And my argument to him was, it has nothing to do with being pals. It has to do with policy. We happen to support GST. We have to support the free trade agreement. You do not. Therefore, <laughs> we have policy differences, but it has nothing to do with what I call being pals. But that was not an easy argument to make sometimes when we were supporting policies that governments also supported very strongly. Uh, permit me one more related follow-up. Um, the book outlines your relationship with Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum. What do you think explains the, the current animus to the World Economic Forum and the global business community more generally? And how much, if any, do you think um, it is ultimately responsible? Well, Sean, I would say this. I think it's not, not an exaggeration to say that perhaps I attended the World Economic Forum meetings in Davos more than any other single Canadian because by my count, I think I went there 19 times. I laugh, I quite literally laugh at the argument that the World Economic Forum is really a de facto master of the universe. The, the crowd that's saying this, and you know who they are, you know, many of them are populists, some of them are uh, active in politics today, some of them are even leaders of parties who say with these conspiratorial theory ideas that these people are way more influential than they should be. Look, the World Economic Forum. And I can tell you this, the World Economic Forum is a great place for a whole bunch of people to get together. And they come from rich countries, from poor countries. They, uh, they bring enemies together, whether it's Israel, Palestine, East, West, Southern Hemisphere, Northern Hemisphere. It's a great one-stop place for getting together. Now, what bothers a lot of people is that, you know, CEOs and great numbers in the past have tended to go there world leaders go there? Is this just a, a fest of the powerful? And I think that's vastly overstated. I refer to these people as the burn the book crowd. You know, uh, look, what is it in Canada today that would suggest to anybody that one should be prohibited by a party fear, thou shall not attend the World Economic Forum? I mean, what's going to be next? Thou shall not attend the United Nations. I mean, it's silly beyond belief. Now, I'm respectful of the people who are of this view, but I, you know, I was in Vienna last month or a month and a half ago, and there was this march through the streets of Vienna, and the attack was on the World Economic Forum and poor Klaus Schwab. Uh, I just think that perhaps Klaus Schwab is, you know, he has a way of speaking that sounds a bit authoritarian, maybe comes across that way, and he's said a few things that have been misinterpreted. But when I uh, ran into the truckers right in front of my offices here who railed against the World Economic Forum in their cries for freedom, I tried to explain to them what I really think the World Economic Forum is really all about. So no doubt, uh, look, I mentioned that in the book, no doubt the critics of the World Economic Forum will, will criticize me for that. I even went so far as to dare to allow a photograph of me and Mulroney and Schwab together 
at a um, at a meeting of the World Economic Forum that I organized in Ottawa with the Prime Minister and a number of premiers. Anyway, I think much ado about nothing. However, it's it's indicative, Sean, of a much deeper, much more profound problem: the problem of populism, the problem of distrust of institutions. This is what's really keeping me awake at night now. And a large part of that, I would argue, started with the great financial crisis of 2008. One interesting insight from the book is that you push back against the rise of historical revisionism about the country. You write, quote, I'm deeply troubled by the waves of denial and cynicism that I see in our public discourse, especially by those who offer a construct of the Canadian state as a failure, as an affirmation of destructive colonialism, unquote. Tom, how do we balance the goals of truth and reconciliation without abandoning the basic idea that Canada, at least in theory, if not always in practice, is worth celebrating? Well, you know, Sean, when I gave Penguin Random House my original proposed title, it was called For Love of Country. And they thought, uh-uh, I think that's too modeling, right? Pick, pick another title, Tom. That's how I came up with Private Power, Public Purpose. Look, it's clear in the book that I truly, truly love this country. And as I say in the book, uh, my mother and father, God bless them, not only gave me life, but they gave me Canada. And I've been eternally. Secondly, and you've heard these arguments recently. I mean, when I say recently, in recent weeks, including supported by a Gallup poll, I believe, that said that Canada is broken. That is that is palpable nonsense, in my view. Canada is not broken. The truckers who are in front of my office were arguing that Canada is broken. I always say to people, look, what is the most desired passport in the world? Canada, hands down. Go through any number of, uh, you know, whether it's the Economic Intelligence Unit or any of the so-called indexes on country performance, and you'll see that Canada always ranks very highly. It's one of the most open societies on earth. We brought in 500,000 immigrants. I mean, to argue that we are not a very successful country, I, I think is nonsense. Of course, healthcare is struggling very, very badly. Glad to see the premiers and the prime minister trying to do something about it this week. We've got a, a level of defense preparedness that I think is, is a disgrace. We have the longest coastlines among the longest coastlines in the world, is still incapable of mounting any form of defense. I've mentioned healthcare, I've mentioned defense policy. When it comes to getting things done, big things done, we're no longer thinking big anymore. We've been unable to build LNG terminals, even though the Japanese and the Germans are crying for it. So it's not, when I say the country's not broken, it's not that the country doesn't have some major challenges. But... um, this idea, that which I'm now seeing not only in the political sphere, but also in the cultural sphere, you know, tear down institutions because they are neo-colonial institutions. I remind people, this country was built from its very beginnings by tens of millions of people, hardworking people. We all stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. Far from being perfect, of course we made mistakes in the past. Because people were operating in a context at that time that is very different than it is today. How can you possibly judge an individual from the 1890s based on criteria that we're using in 2023? It just doesn't make sense. So whether it comes to Sir John A. Macdonald, whose statues are being toppled, my argument is retain and explain. I would make that argument all around the world because I've seen this phenomena 
of uh, decolonization in a number of countries that you and I know well. And uh, we have to come to terms with that because to, to put the argument in its, in its sharpest focus, to argue that old things of the past have to be either canceled or rethought or reinterpreted is not only an insult to what real history is about, but it, it takes away from our ability to understand who we really are. So I'm all for truth and reconciliation. I argue in the book that one of my greatest personal failures is that when I was growing up, I had virtually no contact with Indigenous peoples. That I came to when I was in Mr. Trudeau's office, and subsequently when I talked to other leaders such as Joe Clark, Jean Chrétien, and Brian Mulroney, that all of us, uh, whether we were political leaders or private leaders such as myself, we should have been much more uh, uh, aware of what had happened and what we needed to do about it. But uh, this argument that you erase the past in order to reconstruct the future is a very, very dangerous thing. Uh, it's very much alive. And as I said, we're dealing with it not only in politics, but we're dealing with it in our cultural institutions as well. Let me put a penultimate question to you. We're speaking the day after President Biden's State of the Union address. If you were king for a day, what would you do to reinvigorate the Canada-U.S. relationship? Well, if I came for the day, I would say forget about this renegotiation clause in 2026, right? Canada and the U.S. are very much interdependent. We are very important to one another for all the reasons that you know, not only the economics, but also the security relationship. Therefore, we can't think in terms of, oh, well, yes, we signed an agreement. You call it USMCA. We call it Kuzma. And incidentally, before 2026, we have to sit down and renegotiate it. That, that is, in my view, nonsense. We should be talking about a commitment that is very long-term. Maybe you say, I don't know, we review it every 10 years or every 15 years, whatever the case may be. Or you have a clause in it that allows anybody at any time to raise any individual matters, which good free trade agreements should really be allowed to do. That's number one. Number two, I would argue that it's important for the United States, which is consumed with many, many, I think, serious issues. I would argue even that some of them are existential. I pray that the great republic, of which I've been a great fan all my life, can sort of begin to heal the rifts and come together, but that in the relationship between Canada and the U.S., that more and more Americans, and I know we work hard at this all the time, we have to be better, that the Americans come to understand what a reliable partner we are. We don't just have to refer to 9-11, which I wrote about in the book, but we have to refer to the future with critical minerals. We have to refer to a, 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 a joint defense of the Arctic, where we are bordered with a hostile nuclear power. We have to work together in promoting the international liberal order. These are all the things that we have to do. And I, and, and I know there's probably not time to talk about this, but as you know, I detail in my book my intimate involvement with Mexico. Mexico is a country that is in very ser facing serious challenges at the moment. And uh, that original dream that I had that Canada, Mexico, the United States, working closely together, could develop the most powerful regional bloc in the world by a country mile. We've not leveraged that interdependence nearly as much as I'd hoped that we could. And if I were king, of North America, I would say, let's have a change of government in Mexico, that would help. There we have a left-leaning uh, leader who's not really interested in North America. 
let's have a change of government there. Let's bring unity into the great republic. And let's all work closely together, realize that the three countries working together could be the dominant regional power in the world, I would argue, for the next 50 years. Final question. I discovered in the book that you met your wife, Susan, well, as an undergraduate student at the University of British Columbia. It's clear in the writing how integral she's been to you and your professional accomplishments. And after all these years, just how much you love her. What's your advice to our younger listeners about finding the right spouse? <laughs> well, it's it, in many respects, you know, my book is called Adventures in Business, Politics, and the Arts. One could have added that Adventures in Marriage. Oh, only, oh, only to say, Sean, that whenever two young people meet one another and they clearly are in love with one another, you work very, very hard, obviously, to make the relationship work. And you also have a long-term vision. You know, that's important to all young families. I was blessed in that I had a very smart uh, young woman as my partner from day one. And the remarkable thing about it, and I, I do talk about this in the book, is that the same, at the same time that I became leader of the Business Council on National Issues, Susan went to work for the Privy Council office and had a distinguished career, worked for four prime ministers. And in uh, all that time, I was, you know, not always agreeing with the governments that she served. I mean, I had terrible fights with the the five finance ministers that she worked under, but we that never never uh, it, it never interrupted our relationship at home. She was always terribly discreet, and and occasionally when a minister like Martin, who I went to and said, "Mr. Martin, let's have a hundred billion dollar tax cut," and I got a telephone call from him at about eleven o'clock at night saying, "Tom, what are you smoking?" Uh, and he said, uh, if you don't understand the arithmetic of why I can't find $100 billion, you better talk to your wife. She'll explain the arithmetic to you. And at the time, Susan was working, uh, she was in charge of federal provincial fiscal relations in the Department of Finance, only to say very exciting adventures we had together. And we love each other as much now as we did then. It's not that we never had any political arguments. We did, but I've been truly blessed. That's why in the book, Sean, I dedicated to her and I refer to her as my North Star. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation as it's a fascinating book. Uh, the book's Private Power, Public Purpose, as, as Tom says, subtitled Adventures in Business, Politics and the Arts. Tom DeQuino, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. And, and Sean, thank you. And I'm delighted to know that that master's thesis that you wrote in 2007 is still relevant today about much of what we talked about today. So thank you very much. It's been a privilege to be on with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths, the host of today's program with Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.